Good morning, Grace Chapel. If you would open to Isaiah 61, please. Probably going to talk about one of the least favorite topics in Christianity this morning. Any guesses? It's not hell. Nothing? Sin? Oh, no. We, we, we can talk about that easier than this one. Money? Oh, no. We, we should talk about that, but no. Evangelism. Ugh. Evangelism. I think that's probably one of the words we like the least as followers of Christ. I want to reframe it in a slightly different way this morning. I want to talk about, well, let me, let me ask you this. When you think of evangelism, have you ever thought of Jesus as an evangelist? Have you ever thought about him as an evangelist? Because he is. Toward the beginning of his ministry, Luke 4, verses 16 to 22, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and reads from our passage this morning from Isaiah 61, and he identifies himself as the one who comes to bring good news to the poor. He is the anointed one of the Lord. He is the one whom the Spirit of God has empowered, and he came to preach good news. Jesus is an evangelist. We know that to carry out the mission of the church, which is to make disciples, evangelism is essential. It's in a sense a first step. It is not, our mission is not evangelism. Our mission is disciples. But to make disciples, we all need to be evangelists, just like Jesus. We need to be evangelists to make disciples. But we don't often realize that Jesus himself is an evangelist. Now Isaiah this morning, we'll see, paints a picture of Jesus hundreds of years before his birth. And early in his ministry, Jesus picks up this theme and declares that he and he alone is the one who comes to proclaim good news to the poor. And as we'll see, he makes a commission to us after that. So for us this morning, the important part I want us to get is this. Jesus proclaims good news to the poor to us not only to believe and find salvation for ourselves, but within that, he gives us a commission, a command to take that good news, the same good news he proclaims, and to join Jesus as the people of God to proclaim that good news to others. Jesus is an evangelist, and his followers, all who claim to imitate him, must imitate him in his evangelism. So in essence, Jesus' mission becomes our mission. We are to proclaim good news to the poor. All disciples of Jesus Christ are to be faithful evangelists. In fact, to be a disciple requires you to be an evangelist. So let's turn to Isaiah 61. We're going to look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 11. I want us, as we consider what Jesus' mission is and how Jesus' mission is our mission, I want us to look at three things. The plan, the purpose, and the power of Jesus' mission. First, the plan of gospel 
proclamation, the gospel proclamation of Jesus' plan, we'll see in verses 1 through 3. The secondly is the purpose of gospel proclamation in verses 3 through 8. And then lastly, the power of gospel proclamation in 9 through 11. The plan, the purpose, the power. Jesus' mission is our mission. Let's begin verses 1 through 3, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance over God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The Lord's prepared his servants to bring good news to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the captives, to those who are bound, to those who mourn. So if we can sum up, I think we can use the word poor to sum up all of these, the captives, the bound, the mourning, the brokenhearted, they are all poor. God's good news is for the poor. So the question then becomes, who are the poor? Who are the poor? As most of you know, poverty is far more complex than a simple lack of material possessions. Poverty at root exists because relationships are broken. If you are impoverished, it's because your relationship with God, family, friends, neighbors, relatives are all broken. Poverty exists because of a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with others, and a broken relationship with the world. So poverty is far more expansive than just a lack of material wealth. Poverty includes all those who are weary and heavy laden and broken. I love how one commentator defines the poor. He says this, Those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart to try. Those who are so bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. Those who think that they will never again experience the favor of the Lord or see His just vengeance meted out against those who have misused them. Those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes, sackcloth, and the fainting heaviness of despair. These are they to whom the servant Messiah shouts, Good news! Do you see yourself in that description? I hope you do. Because good news is for those who are poor. And the one who proclaims it, the gospel, Jesus the evangelist, is the same one who fulfills the gospel. So Jesus is both the messenger and the messenger, the message and the messenger. Jesus is the one who brings good news. He is the chief evangelist. He gathers up the brokenhearted. He comforts those who mourn. He shows deep and intense care for those who are broken. But Jesus doesn't just proclaim good news. He carries out the application of that good news. He makes the hope of a good news a present reality. 
It is one thing to say, here's some good news. It is another to put that good news into action. It is one thing to tell those in Lebanon of Jesus Christ. It's another thing to go walk with them and take out the bodies of the rubble. To walk with the families who have lost a loved one. Can't help but think, I believe his name was Zamar Jones, seven-year-old, killed in Philly this past week. No child should die. No child should die just playing, playing in the street. God is concerned with the spiritual well-being of that family. It's one thing to go tell them that there is hope in Jesus Christ. It's another thing to, as you're telling them that there's hope in Jesus Christ, to actually walk by, walk with them, and show them the hope that you have. See, God is not just concerned with our spiritual well-being, but also with our physical and emotional well-being. He is concerned with the whole person. I love how Scripture is clear in the, the year of the Lord's favor which Jesus says, which Isaiah says, points back to the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. The Lord establishes regulations of justice. Built into God's law was care for the poor. God has always been and remains today concerned for the poor, for the least of these. God is concerned for the whole person. When Jesus comes then and proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, He is pointing back to the year of Jubilee. So every 50 years, the land was to rest. The people were to trust in the Lord's provision. And that 50th year was like a reset. If you had fallen into poverty, your life was reset. You had a new start. It was a time of renewal, of restoration. It was a time of trust. It was a time of hope, for, especially for those who are needy and those who are materially poor. It was a year of God's justice. So God established His people, Israel, to be a community of justice. In surveying the Old Testament laws, of, uh, specifically on poverty, Pastor Tim Keller says this, God's concern for the poor is so strong that He gave Israel a host of laws that, if practiced, would have virtually eliminated any permanent underclass. Imagine that. No poor, no underclass, no poverty, no disparity between the haves and have-nots. Every time when I was working during, when early on when we moved to Philly, I had this one job where I was actually repairing treadmills. And I, what I would have to do is we were living in city, one of the poorest sections in Philadelphia, I would have to drive out to some of the most wealthiest houses and repair their treadmills and hear them complain about their $3,000 treadmill that doesn't work, and then I'd have to drive back in and see my neighbors who lack food, whose house is falling down literally around them. That disparity. One day, it is gone. See, Jesus and Israel and God, this was a supposed to be the mission of Israel to be a picture of this truly just community but as we know throughout the history of Israel what happens the people rebelled the people rejected the Lord and forsaking the Lord they ended up forsaking the poor the year of Jubilee, while remaining a law on the books, became forgotten in practice. So instead of proclaiming liberty, rest, and renewal, and restoration to the poor people of Israel, the people of God oppressed 
them. They failed to obey the word. They failed, and that had effects, societal effects, especially for the poor. And the poor, especially the material poor, the ones who paid the heavy price for Israel's disobedience. But throughout these later chapters, Isaiah calls his people back to repentance, back to himself, back to his just ways. And now, because of Christ, this becomes a deeper reality. A year of rest, renewal, and restoration is promised for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is our future. This is promised by Jesus Christ. A time of rest, renewal, and restoration. Right now, as we await, we live this in-between, between the already and the not yet. We are waiting. We're having foretastes. When you see someone love their neighbor, that's a foretaste of God's mercy and goodness and justice. When you love your neighbor, have a neighbor love you, that is a foretaste of God's mercy and justice, a time of rest and renewal. But there's a future time we look forward to, and in this time we groan as we wait, probably impatiently, for the adoption of sons, for the restoration of the world to be complete. But this, brothers and sisters, is God's plan for gospel proclamation, that the good news be proclaimed to those who are poor, to those who are poor in spirit. The secondly is the purpose of gospel proclamation. Look at verses 3 through 7 taking up in the middle of verse 3, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall be built up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. So what is the purpose of Jesus' gospel proclamation. I believe Isaiah says it is twofold. First, it's for the people of God to be built up, and secondly, for the Lord to be glorified, for the glory of God and the good of His people. First, the servant comes to proclaim liberty and good news so that the God's people will be built up. They will be called oaks of righteousness. The idea of an oak is a permanent stability and abundant security, stability. The idea of an oak of righteousness is one of righteous stability, abundance of justice, permanence of peace. It's a building up of God's people into a community of love, righteousness, and justice, established, secure, and rooted in the righteousness and justice of God. And building up the Lord's people, all that was once ruined, destroyed, is made new. I love this phrase, the devastation of many generations are reversed. How many of our generations have brought devastation where without getting into the complexity of the sin of the fathers being passed down, sins of fathers in some way are often passed down and we see generational devastation. 
my sins, as terrifying as it is, are passed down to my kids, who will then take it and mold it into their own and pass it down to their kids. And there's an on and on it goes. But one day, God's word says, those generational devastations will be no more. The devastation that we saw, did you guys see the picture of the crater in Lebanon? There is an actual crater where that explosion took place. But what God's word says is one day that crater will be no more. All that is destroyed will be made new. In verses 5 to 6, we see that the Lord who began with a particular people has always been about expanding his plan of redemption to all the nations. Look at it. Strangers and foreigners enter into the people of God. It blows my mind still when the people of God confronted Jesus and even reading through Acts now to prepare for the next series, how little the Peter even grasps the fact that from the before the foundations of the world, but even as far back as Abram in Genesis 12, you are to be a blessing to all the nations. So why is Peter so confused in Acts 10 with Cornelius? God's people are called to be priests. Strangers and foreigners will enter in the people of God. People will share the wealth of the nations. The message of the gospel is not for a select group of people for one specific nation, but for the people of God to proclaim the good news for all the nations. This has always been God's plan from the beginning to bless the nations. It began with Abram and will end with the church of Christ. We are not just to proclaim good news to the poor. We are also to intentionally pursue the well-being of those who are poor in the nations. And as we do this, proclaim this gospel, God is forming a gospel community of men and women and children from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. This gospel community is formed into the glorious body of Christ. And what Israel failed to do we now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can do, we can become a community of justice where the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed and love to our neighbors is carried out. We build up the body of Christ together. We repair all that was once destroyed. The second thing is this. In all of this, the mission of God working through the church ultimately leads to the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ezekiel's continual refrain is that the nations will know that I am the Lord. This is our mission, which ultimately results in the glory of our God. God is using us, a people, a broken, poor people, to proclaim good news to others. So his full and resplendent glory will shine throughout the world. That is why Philippians describes us as those lights in the midst of a wicked and crooked generation. When it is most darkest, we should be the most shining. Look at verse 8. It is central to this passage. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. God's anger is always justified and just. He loves justice. He hates injustice. To those who practice injustice, He will give them their due recompense. In other words, they will get what they deserve. There will be judgment. 
But remarkably, remarkably to those whom the Lord has set his covenant love upon, they will receive mercy. There will be salvation. The Lord promises to make an everlasting covenant with his people. This covenant is receiving what we do not deserve. We, as a sinful people, deserve God's wrath, his just condemnation, his judgment. Why do we receive his mercy? Because of his love, his covenant love. We deserve to be eternally destroyed. The recompense should be meted out against us, but we instead receive mercy instead of being destroyed by our Creator who would be just and right to do it. We receive the adoption as sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. The foundation of this merciful Merciful salvation is the Lord's covenant love for his people. He has established an everlasting covenant with us. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a covenant member and receive all the covenant blessings of this everlasting covenant. What does that mean? You who are the poor receive liberty. You who are the captives are set free. You who are the mourners receive gladness. In Christ Jesus, our sin, our sorrow, and mourning has turned into hope, peace, and joy. This, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel that we are to proclaim. The third point is the immense power of gospel proclamation. Look at verses 9 through 11. God's holy word says, Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants of the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. In other words, there's an outward focus to Jesus' gospel proclamation. As we hear, as we believe, as we trust in this good news, it turns us outward. As image bearers, we are mirrors whose purpose is to reflect the beauty of Christ and the glory of God. We are mirrors. Think about it, mirrors are never turned inward. They always reflect something. And we are those mirrors who are to reflect the glory, the greatness, the goodness the mercy, the justice, the glory of our God. In other words, receiving salvation isn't just fire insurance from hell. Receiving salvation, as much of it is as a joyous privilege, that privilege is never alone. With that privilege comes responsibility. With that privilege of salvation comes responsibility. We receive not just the forgiveness of Christ, we receive the commission of Christ. 
So we are required not to just delight in our great salvation, but we are required to share it with others. We are called to be witnesses. We are priests to the nations. We are to serve as mediators between God and others. Our salvation brings with it a commission. And here's how it works. God so loves us. And our love to him is returned. And that love that we receive then overflows in love to one another. So we become not just hearers of the good news. We become proclaimers of the good news. The spiritual offspring of Abraham shall be known among the nations to the extent that all who see us shall acknowledge that we are the blessed by the Lord. We are known by our worship. God's word says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Do your neighbors, friends, relatives, co-workers know you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Maybe it's Because you have or you have not rejoiced greatly in the Lord, for he has clothed you in his salvation. We are also known by our good deeds, our righteousness. The Lord our God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. In both our worship, our love to God, and our deeds, our love to others, the one common denominator is what? Love. Love. As we saw last week, it is love to God expressed in worship and love to one another expressed in our actions. God delivers us from one thing, kingdom of darkness, and brings us to something else. We are delivered from unrighteousness to live out God's righteousness. Our lives live before the world, serve as proclamation of good news, and our lives are not enough. They must come verbal. There must be a verbal declaration. It is not enough to just allow our deeds to preach. We ourselves need to preach. When someone says, okay, when someone looks at the hope within you, they see your deeds, but then we need to be ready to give a reason for our deeds. Here is the reason I have hope. Our hope, our deeds are not enough. They must always come with an actual verbal explanation, proclamation, preaching of the good news. Why do you live in such a way? I live because my Redeemer lives. We are to greatly rejoice in the Lord. Our soul shall exalt in him because he has adorned us with such a great salvation. So now you may be wondering, okay, I am supposed to join Jesus in his mission. But it's terrifying. I can't do it. Or how am I supposed to do it when we're not even supposed to be near one another? Let me tell you, this pandemic is not an excuse This pandemic in no way takes away the fact that we as God's people must continue to live our lives in such a way and proclaim the good news in such a way that our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, those we encounter know that our Redeemer lives. When this happens, when our lives are transformed in such a way, we see the power of the gospel proclamation. And this is what is important for us to grasp. How do we become faithful evangelists? We breathe in the evangel. We breathe in the good news. We are never going to be able to exhale gospel news unless we are breathing in the gospel. 
We need to hear the good news of our Lord and Savior who died for our wretched sinful souls and who by the power and mercy of God raised us together in Christ. Now we are seated with him in the heavenly places. We who were once dead in trespasses and sins, but the mercy of God redeems us. When we breathe that in, when we encapsulate that in our minds, when we implant that and root it in our hearts and minds, we then cannot do anything else but exalt in the Lord our God because He has clothed us with just wonderful garments of salvation. Then, as Jesus is our evangelist, we are then carried out to do His mission with Him. We become evangelists as well as we seek to make disciples. Jesus came, sent by the Father. And before he left, he sent his people. And he empowered his people by the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus brings good news to the poor for their good and for his glory. And now he has commanded us, his people, to continue with that mission of proclamation. It is the plan of God for the gospel to be proclaimed to the nations. It is the purpose of God for the gospel to build up His holy church and to glorify God. It is the power of this gospel proclamation which transforms lives that bear witness to an ever-watching world. As Peter reminds us, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you hear all that gospel truth? Brothers and sisters, breathe it in. You are a chosen race. You once were not a people, but now you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And then what does Peter say? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of dark, his darkness in, out of the darkness and brought you into his marvelous light we are the chosen of god turned from wayward sinners into royal priests. Once we were not a people, but now we are a holy nation. And not just a people, a holy nation, but actually a people of the Lord our God, the covenant-loving, merciful, gracious, powerful, mighty, loving God's possession. You are His. And you are His for a purpose, to declare His excellencies, to declare His glory, to declare His mercy that He has lavished upon you. His mission is our mission. We are evangelists for the glory of God and the good of others. Father, help us. May we be faithful in proclaiming your excellencies. And those excellencies, there is no end. You are great and greatly to be praised. May our lives be lived in accord with your message. May you use us as your gospel messengers to bring good news to the poor, good news to the nations. Allow us to breathe in deeply of your gospel mercy, so that we may turn it outwardly and breathe out your gospel excellence. 
We ask these things in the name of our glorious, powerful, mighty Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.